Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. This is a story of conspiracy and betrayal, of a lust for power and a lost allegiance. The story of the man who killed King Richard III. Sir Rhysap Thomas has been forgotten by historians and even written out of the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, until now. A swashbuckling hero in terms of soldiery. Two great characteristics of Rhysap Thomas was his strength of will and his ability as a military leader. A complex, passionate character and compelling evidence now suggests he dealt the fatal blow, killing Richard III. This is the untold story of a man who killed a king and changed history. Bosworth, England, the 22nd of August, 1485. The most famous battle in Britain took place. A battle that was to change the course of history and the destinies of three great men. King Richard III, who was killed. Henry Tudor, who became king. And a Welshman, Rhysap Thomas, the man who dealt the fatal blow killing Richard III. Today, Bosworth is a busy heritage centre. But although this place commemorates one of the most famous battles in the history of Britain, no mention is made here of who actually killed the last Plantagenet king. Rhysap Thomas was a Welsh nobleman and accomplished soldier who fought at Bosworth and survived to tell the tale. At the end of his life, in his seventies, he went to the Grey Friars Priory in Carmarthen, South Wales, to die. But he was not at peace. He was plagued by memory and regret. Three quarters of a century of life, 
And now I'm facing the same hell as that which I created for so many. Oh, how easy it is to get drunk on power and status. Or through the tasting of the blood and fear on the battlefield. But it is here, in this head, that sobriety and its truth starts to hurt, like a sword through the flesh. By 1485, Richard III had been king for almost two years and was 32 years old. The Battle of Bosworth brought to an end the decades of fighting between the House of York with a white rose and the House of Lancaster with its red rose. The great conflict between these two houses, the Wars of the Roses, is as compelling today as it was deadly then. Every year, the reenactment of the Battle of Bosworth on the 22nd of August attracts over 750 reenactors and thousands of visitors. Richard died, and in doing so, history changed. The Wars of the Roses is phenomenally complicated, and I've tried to put myself in the position of somebody who was alive at that time and worry about the loyalty which they would have had. And I think you were mainly loyal to somebody that you trusted. The 15th century generally was a difficult time politically for a lot of noble families in England and Wales. And certainly a lot of Welsh families would have found it quite difficult to make the right choice here politically. The 15th century, of course, was really very much in the shadow of the defeat of the Glyndwr Rebellion. Owain Glyndwr was a Welsh nobleman who led a revolt against the English rule of Henry IV. Seen as a rebellious character by some, others welcomed him as the son of prophecy who would free Wales from English rule and return the crown of Britain to the true Britons, the Welsh. Owain Glyndwr's revolt came to an end around 1415, but its impact lasted for decades. The Welsh suffered under increasingly oppressive laws as a direct result of the uprising and resentment of the English ran deep. It stayed in the hearts of all Welshmen and definitely all Englishmen who decided that this wasn't going to happen again. So yeah, a very pivotal time, I think. And then of course you've got the Wars of the Roses, which kind of disrupts all that. And now you've got Welsh brother fighting Welsh brother, depending on whether you're a Yorkist or, or a Lancastrian. So very, very confusing times. The tension between the houses of York and Lancaster dominated the 15th century. Welsh noble families had to walk a tightrope between the two. One of the families that managed to flourish was that of Rhysap Thomas. His ancestors were not born into aristocracy, but rose through the ranks, achieving status and power. They ruled here at Dinever Castle. It commanded views of the Towy Valley and had once been home to the famous Welsh prince of the 12th century, Lord Rhys of Dinever. The family was Welsh, spoke Welsh, and were patrons of poets and musicians. By the 15th century, Griffith Ap Nicholas, the grandfather of Rhys Ap Thomas, was the most powerful man in the locality. He became a sheriff of Carmarthenshire. A keen supporter of the House of Lancaster, 
He mixed in the right circles and, by being seen as a faithful servant to the crown, he received status, land, power and money. By 1440, he possessed the lease for all the land on the Dinever estate. He was a bit of a chancer. He was a bit of a dell boy of his time. Um, he became quite wealthy due to a lot of spurious activities that he carried on in and around Carmarthenshire. And he actually, although he was such a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a rake, he still was a man who was educated, who was very intelligent, very much a patron of the arts, even though he was very rough and ready. And he was a man of his time. I mean, these were wild times and you took what you could get and he took more than most. But he built up a little empire down here in uh, West Wales. Griffith Ap Nicholas went on to win favours and secured the rights to the land surrounding Dinever, Kidwelly, Carmarthen, Aberystwyth, Cardigan and Carrickennan. He was a great patron of the arts and of poets, and they returned the favour, praising him in their work. Griffiths allegedly was killed at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. Now, I say allegedly because it appears he died a couple of years earlier, but the bards, whom he patronised, of course, decided to give him um, a heroic end rather than just having die on a bed. Um, he died at Mortimer's Cross, you know, fighting fighting for the Lancastrian cause. The Battle of Mortimer's Cross took place near Hereford in 1460. Griffith supported the Lancastrian side of Owain Tudor and his son Jasper, but they lost. Owain Tudor was executed, Jasper Tudor managed to escape. A year later, the House of York attacked Carreg Kennan Castle still held by the family of the now-deceased Griffith Ap Nicholas. His son Thomas and his grandson Rhys fled Wales to the court of Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy in France. The family had fallen foul of the dangers of the time, but for the young Rhys it opened a door to another world. Conscience is gnawing, but the memory is filled with mixed pictures, some with joyful hues. Philip's court in Burgundy, oh what a place, filled with culture and art, and an emphasis on learning how to behave like aristocracy, learning about European culture and also the continent's methods of fighting. I was so young, but so ready to learn, and that's what I did. Philip had a learning system that was born from the techniques of the Knights of the Golden Fleece, similar to the ideas of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. I loved the history of Arthur, and the bards saw me as his successor. The court of, of Philip was one of the most renowned courts in Europe. It was the best court in Europe. And here, of course, it was based on the sort of knightly virtues of chivalry, honour. There were lots of jousts. 
young men were trained in, in the art of warfare, but also um, Philip was a very well-educated man. He had lots of scholars at his court, lots of poets. So it was, it was really um, quite a staggering place to be. And I think for a um, young man like Reese, who was about 14 at the time, it must have been overwhelming to the senses. Reese and his father returned to Wales around 1467. By this time, Rhys was a high-achieving young man. He married well to the daughter of a Welsh noble family who were neighbours of his Dinover estate. Most of the fertile Towy Valley came under his control, and following the death of his father and his two brothers, Rhys was the sole heir to the wealth and land of the whole family. Rhys's father was killed in battle in 1468 near Machynlleth in mid-Wales, again fighting for the Lancastrian cause against the Yorkists. In his inherited position of power, Rhys Ap Thomas chose to be a great patron of the arts, continuing a family tradition and earning a place for himself in the poems of the time. In some cases, in, in the 15th century, for example, um, we have a single poem for a single patron, and that's all we know about it. But uh, in Sir Rhys of Thomas's case, we have a, a wide range of, of poems by a wide range of poets. Uh, for example, uh, David Llwyd of Mathavarn, um, uh, Gwilym uh, Abiaian Hain, uh, Lewis Clincothi, and so on and so on. Uh, many of these poets were, were minor poets, but it's key, I think, that the most influential and the best poets of the time were also patronised by Sir Teresa Thomas. In the latter half of the 15th century, the conflict between the houses of York and Lancaster continued to dominate political life. Henry Tudor had been born in 1457 in Pembroke Castle, and his Lancastrian supporters argued that he was the only rightful heir to the throne. Like a game of chess, noble families had to carefully plot their allegiance, with some swapping sides to avoid falling out of favour and losing their land and power. I learned very early on that not all battles can be won through war. Playing the game, planning and buying time comes with its own rewards. Do not mention values and principles. Very few material rewards come from these. But now, as I close in on the end, my principles and values are becoming more important. Undoubtedly, they're a balm for the troubled conscience. In 1483, King Edward IV died. His sons, Edward V and Richard, were only twelve and nine years old. Their uncle, Richard of York, became their guardian. But the young princes suddenly and scandalously disappeared. Richard of York became King Richard III as a result. It was a triumph for the Yorkists. The Lancastrians, however, were outraged. The people were now hoping for peace and stability. Resap Thomas, breaking with family tradition, swore allegiance to King Richard III. 
It is even claimed that he said only over his body would anyone pass through Wales to attack King Richard. But the question remained then, and still does today, what happened to the two young princes in the tower, Richard III's nephews, who disappeared? Even by the brutal standards of the Wars of the Roses, killing innocent children was seen as unforgivable. Here in Bosworth, the Richard III Society, which played a pivotal role in the reburial of his skeleton, has a clear mission to reclaim the reputation of Richard III. He was a good king um, in the things that he did, his laws. Uh, we have no idea what would have come out of a longer reign, obviously, but he, you know, he did things that were good for the common people. Our aim is to set the record straight because we think that Richard was a good man who's been badly served by history. The disappearance of the young princes may have fueled another private concern for Rhys Ap Thomas. King Richard III wanted Rhys's son Griffith to be held at the royal court as guarantor for his loyalty to the throne. I think Rhys gave his word to Richard at the time that he was writing to him when he was begging for his son to remain here. His son was only two or three years old. He didn't want him being carted off to England, maybe never to see him again. And I think when he was begging for, for his son's life, he meant what he said to Richard. You know, you are my liege lord, and he'd always been faithful to whichever king had been on the throne. And I think that, perhaps coupled with the rumours of the princes in the tower, which Rhys must have heard about, um, decided, Rhys, that maybe, you know, maybe I might break my oath to Richard. Yes, I did send a letter promising to support Richard. The words are still in my memory. But Richard was to take the boy into his care. My four-year-old son, hostage to my own loyalty. This was too much for me and his mother. Such a cheek on behalf of the king for taking my son. What kind of man would do this to a four-year-old child? Even though I signed the letter, most obedient and most faithful subject and servant, such requests were hurting and angering me. No. He would not have my son as a hostage. But I couldn't let my true feelings show to anyone. I'm buying time. My opportunity to strike back will come. In 1484, Richard III's son died. And a year later, his wife. This left him weak, a king without an heir. Meanwhile, his Lancastrian rival Henry Tudor and his uncle Jasper Tudor were in France building an army, preparing to land on British soil and attack Richard. Here in Kidwelly, Henry Tudor had an important ally, a lawyer named Traheyarnap Morgan. He was the link between Henry Tudor and his supporters within the Welsh aristocracy, including, secretly, Prisap Thomas. Publicly, Priests continued to support King Richard. 
gold. I loved its colour and feeling to an excess. Richard gave me a sum of money for a third year in a row to try and keep me on side. But his threat of keeping my son hostage was one step too far. And under Richard III's leadership and the House of York, there was no room for me to rise in the political ranks. Henry Tudor offered more. Yes, there was a risk. But through careful planning and elements of conspiracy, there was a way to defeat Richard, even though I swore allegiance to him. And I will not go back on my word, unless it will be beneficial to me. On August the 1st, 1485, Henry Tudor and his uncle Jasper Tudor sailed towards Wales with the support of the King of France. Six days later, they landed in Mill Bay, two miles from Dale in South Pembrokeshire. When Henry Tudor landed here, he created a dilemma for Rhysap Thomas. Should he fight against the newcomer or reveal his true support for him? It was a turning point in history. According to legend, Rhysap Thomas had sworn that if anyone was to come into the country to attack Richard III, they would have to do so over his own body. How could he release himself from this oath of allegiance? He found a way out with the help of the Bishop of St David's. He could keep to his word by lying under the Mullock Bridge here while Henry and his soldiers marched over him. The myth that, you know, Rhys lies down under Mullock Bridge and, and Henry Tudor marches across so that Rhys doesn't break his word is really just a myth. Rhys was halfway up country by then and he wouldn't have had time to get back and lie under Mullock Bridge and then come out and go all the way back again. It would have been pointless. By keeping a distance between himself and Henry, Rhys succeeded in keeping everyone guessing. Who was he supporting? The uncertainty was a useful tactic. Henry travelled the coastal route from Pembrokeshire to Mid Wales and then inland towards Welshpool and Bosworth. Rhys took a different path from Carmarthen through Mid Wales. Was he strategically protecting Henry from Richard's forces in the east? He shadowed Henry all the way up to Welshpool before he made his choice to throw in his lot with Henry. And I think it was a very dangerous thing that he did. It was a great chance that he took. But he rolled the dice, it came out in Henry's favour, and he went with Henry. On the way to Bosworth, Henry Tudor stayed near Machynlleth with the prophet-poet David Llwyd from Mathavarn. Mathavarn was the, the rebel broadcasting house in Wales during the wars of the, the Roses. Uh, and David Llwyd, without any doubt, uh, he was uh, the, the rebel minister uh, of information. There was good reason, therefore, why Henry Tudor would have called why he would have stayed overnight with David Lloyd. Over dinner that evening, Henry Tudor asked David Lloyd what his fate would be. The prophet promised to give him an answer in the morning. 
David had very sleepless nights uh, and according to tradition his wife she was fed up with him and she just turned around and said well just give him the simple answer tell him that there's no doubt that he will be the victor if he loses the day uh, it's doubtful if he'll come back here and, and bother you again and if he is victorious it's a great probability that you will be lavishly rewarded victory was in reach thanks in no small part to the private allegiance of Rhys Ap Thomas. I succeeded in winning the support of my people and the young men who were proud to fight for the Welshman, Henry Tudor. I'm a firm believer in exercise and gaining strength in order to be able to fight on the battlefield. If I've learned anything over the years, it's about military strength knowing where and when to strike. Henry had promised so much to me, and I shared the hope of seeing a Welshman on the throne of England and Wales. One bard referenced Henry as the second son of prophecy, and our hopes were that he would be more successful than the first, which was Owen Glyndwr. That August, back in 1485, was a turning point in more ways than one. I was young and in the prime of my life. From Welshpool, Henry Tudor and Rhysap Thomas's joint army marched through Wales on their way to Mid-England, their aim to defeat King Richard III. At the same time, the King was in Nottingham preparing for the upcoming battle. By now, it was all too clear to him that Rhys had switched allegiance and was supporting Henry Tudor against him. Oh, what a plan to trick Richard, to create doubt. The leader of the land in North Wales also joined us, William Griffith ap Robin and Rhys Vaur ap Meredir. Hugh Conway and Richard ap Howell from Mostyn. The Welsh were out in full force in support of Henry Tudor. I might as well admit here, it was my army, my thousand disciplined soldiers, that were the most key to the fighting, and Henry Tudor knew that all too well. King Richard moved his soldiers from his headquarters in Nottingham to Leicester, one of the main hubs of power during this period, thanks to its central position. They then marched onwards towards the small village of Market Bosworth. Wales at this time was ruled from Ludlow on Crown land, a strategic position for the administration of North and South Wales and the borderlands. What a morning! The morning of the 22nd of August, 1485. Between us and Richard's army, the land was wet and boggy. On one side, ready to fight on behalf of Henry Tudor, was the Duke of Oxford. On the other side, and having not decided whether to support Henry Tudor, 
was to Stanley's. Arrows were shot by the soldiers of the Duke of Oxford. The fighting went ahead. The Stanleys joined in in the fighting, on the side of Henry Tudor. Later, and I understand why, Richard decided to rush forward to attack Henry Tudor, who had a group of soldiers next to him, including my own soldiers. Henry's flag bearer was killed, who was Sir William Brandon. The flag was raised once more by Frisvaud ap Meredith. I saw Richard coming towards Henry. I had the lance axe in my hand. As he rushed towards Henry, he turned his back on me. I raised my weapon. We know it was actually quite a short battle as battles go. Um, it was determined quite decisively, of course, because of the death of Richard III. That decided the outcome quite clearly. We have this picture of Richard thrusting himself into the middle of Henry's closest supporters in the hope of bringing the battle to a decisive victory. He came off his horse, he seems to have disappeared into this throng of uh, warriors who were beating him down. And it may be the case that there were quite a few people who struck a blow at that point. After around two hours of battle, it was all over. Henry Tudor was now the King of England and Wales. Following a morning of fighting, Rhysap Thomas was appointed knight on the fields of Bosworth by Henry Tudor. Later, Henry Tudor walked triumphantly into Leicester, with Richard III's body following close behind him. The body was displayed for two days before he was buried at Greyfriars Priory. How do I feel about the Battle of Bosworth? the wrong man won um, but then I would say that it's very strange because Richard was a good general he was a great warrior he only lost the one battle of course Bosworth in 2012 his body was found beneath a car park in Leicester it was proven to be the skeleton of King Richard III and that he had died from his skull being split by an axe or a sword-like weapon. Within months of the victory in Bosworth, the most important Welsh poet of his day, Gitor Glyn, wrote of the battle. He praised Sir Rhys, indicating that it was Rhys himself who struck the fatal blow. Gitor Glyn, the Welsh poet, suggests that he did so, describing him sort of shaving the head of Richard III. Um, some argue that that uh, suggests a halberd um, or a, sort of an axe. It's interesting that Gitor Glyn, who's generally quite correct in his facts, he's quite careful with his facts, suggested that he was the killer. So I think it can be accepted, though it can't be proven. Gitor 
uh, makes it uh, uh, obvious, I think, that uh, Sir Teresa Thomas played a, a key part in uh, Henry Tudor's uh, uh, winning of the field in, in, in Bosworth. Um, he makes that obvious. He says that King Harry actually uh, won the field because of our master, because of uh, Sir Teresa. We've also got John Molinet, the uh, contemporary chronicler, who said it was a Welshman, but he doesn't name Rees. It may not have been particularly sound idea to become known as a king killer, as a regicide. That could actually have reflected badly on somebody had um, there been another change in fortune. So there may have been a reason not to advertise too much if Rees Thomas had actually been responsible for killing Richard III. Well, he was elevated to be a knight three days after the battle. He was then given offices in South Wales, but he was also made a privy councillor. And so he was also part of the court, part of Henry's life, part of the circle that advised him. So in that sense, yes, he was central to the development of the Hendrician scheme. That says a lot. So... I would say it points to the fact that he probably did kill Richard. Because without Richard being dead, there is no way Henry could ever be king. There was no good wounding him. Somebody had to kill him. Without a doubt, Henry Tudor was pleased. He couldn't be more grateful. I was knighted on the spot. What would my grandfather make of this? Henry was true to his word, and I was made the Chamberlain of South Wales, a steward for land and king and control over the lordship of Bilthwells. Oh, things were changing immensely in my history. On the 30th of October, two months after the Battle of Bosworth, Henry Tudor was crowned Henry VII. Sir Isap Thomas continued to accept honours and land, which made him even wealthier than his grandfather Griffith Ap Nicholas had been. Many more battles were fought in order to protect the reign of Henry VII, and Sir Rees was at the forefront of these battles. We have some evidence, for instance, from Polydor Virgil, who was writing during Henry VII's reign, who said that the two great characteristics of Lisa Thomas was his strength of will and his ability as a military leader. And that probably does demonstrate to us exactly what his importance was for the Tudors. He was a man of purpose, he was a very solid man, somebody who was obviously very able when it came to leading troops in battle. A trusted ally to Henry VII. And the king allowed his elder son Arthur to be raised in Ludlow alongside Griffith, the son of Sir Rhysap Thomas. The family of Sir Rhys were now at the heart of the royal court, as well as having great influence as rulers in Wales. Sir Rhys's swift rise to the top reflects the gratitude Henry VII felt towards him reinforcing the evidence that it was Rhys who killed Richard III on the battlefield. Rhys was rewarded with a great deal of authority. He came second only to Jasper Tudor when it came to authority in South Wales. He was also, of course, a member of the King's Council, so he played a, a more extensive role, in fact. Um, he wasn't just 
a ruler on the ground in Wales, but he also gave advice to the king on other matters as well. There is a tradition that Henry always referred to him as Father Rhys, even though Rhys wasn't that much older than him. He was known affectionately as King of Carmarthen because he was virtually king here in South Wales. He could do really whatever he pleased. Henry VII's eldest son, Arthur, the Prince of Wales, married Catherine of Aragon in 1501 and lived here in Ludlow. But within five months of their marriage, Arthur died. The prince was buried here in Worcester Cathedral. Griffith Apris led the funeral proceedings, a great honour. The relationship between Sir Rhys's family and the king was further acknowledged in 1505 when Rhys was awarded the Knight of the Garter, the highest chivalric honour given by the king. The crest of the Garter is clear to see on his tomb here in St Peter's Church, Carmarthen. He received, obviously, the Order of the um, Knight of the Garter, which was a huge honour for him which took place, the, the whole ceremony was taking place in Carew Castle. Uh, wonderful procession, jousting, all sorts of things were going on. And the fact was, he worked so well within the English court, with the English monarchy, helping them, and of course, later on, Henry VIII. Um, so he had the kind of standing that I don't think any Welshman has had before or since. What a celebration. Myself, soldiers from the Denevor area, being honoured with one of the greatest honours possible, Knight of the Garter. What a great period. And with so much land and so many castles coming under my control. It was a period of organising and making sure soldiers were available and properly prepared. When Henry the Seventh died in 1509, it was an end of an era, but his son Henry VIII wanted me to continue to provide counsel and rule here in Wales. Even in 1512, and me at 63 years old, I went to France with the king to fight. My main job here at home, to keep watch in the seas. That way the enemy won't be able to land on the coast of southwest Wales and stage an attack on the country. Oh, I was so proud of my son Griffith at this time. The heir was safe, and he was being awarded more and more responsibilities. And he was also in favour with the king. Great days. But disaster struck the family. In 1521, Griffith Apries died at the age of 43. He was buried in Worcester Cathedral, close to the tomb of Prince Arthur. Cerise had held great hopes for his son, preparing him to become a counsellor of Wales for the king. Now he had lost the heir to his whole estate. It would have to pass instead to his grandson, Rhys Ap Griffith, who was just 15 years old at the time. Sir Rhys's health was worsening. 
On the 3rd of February 1525, he came to Greyfriars Priory in Carmarthen, choosing to spend his final days here rather than at home. Well, Rhys, of course, had led a very long and full life. He was over 75 when he died, and that's quite an unusual age for the period, so he may have had a lot to look back upon. He had a long history, of course, as a warrior. A lot of people had lost their lives in battle as a result of him. He may also have looked back and thought that there were times when he was a little bit ruthless. He was known as quite a harsh governor of South Wales, so he may have felt that there were times when he could have been more merciful. I mean, we must remember that Rhys had probably been there when Richard's body had been carted off very ignominiously to the Greyfriars in Leicester. And I think for a man like Rhys, this would have been a very difficult thing to cope with in his conscience. He may have felt that he had quite a lot to confess at this point, uh, all in all. And with the thought processes of the medieval Catholic Church, it may very well have occurred to him that now was the time to, to repent when he was about to meet his maker. I'm sorry for what I did. I'll end my days here with the Greyfriars, like my liege lord Richard did, and the man I killed, the man that I destroyed. The end is nearing, and everything is becoming weaker. Is it wise to look back? Yes, there were successes. Who would have thought when I was a child playing around in Dinevor and Abermarlais that I would experience such success and so many losses? Oh Lord, I try to be honest, to be fair. I did not plan to swear allegiance to Richard III and then to betray and kill him on the fields of Bosworth. But surely that is the soldier's fate. How can you judge me? O oh Lord, don't judge me solely on my faults. Forgive me for my transgression with Richard. Sir Hesap Thomas died on the 9th of February 1525 at the age of 76 and was buried with the monks in Greyfriars Priory. After Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, Sir Hesap's body was moved here to St Peter's Church in the centre of Carmarthen. In his will, Sir Hees provided for his daughters from his two marriages, as well as the twelve children of his numerous mistresses. His legitimate grandchild, Hees, inherited everything, but he was later accused of treason and executed by Henry VIII. He let it all slip away, and that was the beginning of the end, I think, for the whole Resap Thomas story and the Resap Thomas legends. They just disappeared through the bad behaviour of his grandson.
But the story of Sir Hesap Thomas, the man who killed a king, is being revived and celebrated for a new generation. Robert Talbot Rice is a descendant of Sir Hees and continues the military connection, a major general with the Welsh Guards. I'm Sir Hesap Thomas's 14 times great-grandson. He was a remarkable man. He lived in violent times. Um, he prospered in violent times. Uh, he, I think, did a great deal to, um, to bring Wales into the heart of British politics. Plans are underway at St Peter's Church in Carmarthen to move his tomb to a more prominent position. Now is the time to bring him into the, the limelight, uh, to retell the story, to emphasise his importance to Welsh history and to British history, to tell the story of Rhysap Thomas, the story that's been hidden for centuries. Rhysap Thomas, a swashbuckling hero in terms of soldiery. He was quite a fine administrator. He was a wheeler dealer. An extremely remarkable man, and what I feel is he's one of the most important lost figures of British history. Reese is a problem. He, he is a, an obvious turncoat, but he probably knew which side his bread was buttered. A man ahead of his time, a great man and a great Welshman. Blackadder's history jumps forward to the age of the Regency, revealing elegance and decadence at 11.05. Next, though, what if Richard III had won the Battle of Bosworth Field? That's the premise as we head back to the very beginning for Baldrick and the Blackadder. <laughs>